0: If you did not bring your Bible this morning, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. Go ahead and open up. If you open up to Psalms, the very middle of your Bible, and go left, you're going to run into Nehemiah. And we began a series last week in Nehemiah. We're going to be continuing that series this morning, and we're going to be in it for some time. We're going to look at a few verses in Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look and see what the heart of a wall builder really looks like. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. And I I can't do this for you. All I can do is preach the gospel as clearly as I possibly can. Let the Lord do His work. But what you can do is you participate. And what I do when we participate together in these sermons is I'm going to ask you to take your life. And lay it down next to what you're going to see and the four qualities in the heart of a wall builder. Character qualities and I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you four of them. And each one of them, I want you to take your life and I want you to lay it down next to Nehemiah's and I want you to honestly, between you and God, you and God only, just deliberate with Him, talk with Him, discuss with Him. Is that present in my life? Do I do this? Is it evident in my life? That's how you could participate this morning. You know, Ray Steadman, who is no longer alive, he was a great preacher. He said in the book of Nehemiah, he says, Jerusalem in ruins is a picture of a life that has lost its defenses against attacks, and it lies open to repeated her in misery. It's a metaphor, he says. It's real history. Nehemiah really happened, but it's a metaphor, it's a picture of a life whose Walls are broken into rubble. And did you know, Christian brother and sister, let me speak to you specifically. Did you know that you, as well as... Myself, we have a mandate. We have a command from God. Here it's reflected. It's seen clearly in Isaiah 58. God says, You will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Did you know, friends, that the Bible is incredibly rich when it talks about walls. Let me take you behind the scenes for just a minute. Because you've got to have your mind open to the way the Bible refers to walls. Walls in Scripture bring and maintain peace. Look at what Isaiah says. We have a strong city. God sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, fortifications, Look at the results of those walls. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's a wall that God builds and it's made up of our salvation. Walls are metaphors in scripture quite often. Look at what he says in Zechariah. He says, I will be to Jerusalem. That's who he's speaking to. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. You see, if you want to be a wall builder, then what you're building is not your own solutions, your own mechanisms, your own philosophies and ideas. What you're building in your life and in the lives of others, you're building the presence, the truth of God. God says, I will be a wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Did you know that God even gives these walls a name? And he even gives the entryway through them, the gates names. He says in Isaiah 60, you shall call your walls salvation. That's the name on the walls that God builds. And you shall And your gates praise. That's the name of the gates that the people of God can come through. In other words, when you really understand your salvation, it can build in you a praise that erupts to your God. You know, I have friends who grew up years and years in a hyper-legalistic church. Here's what happens in a legalistic church your soul shrinks and shrinks and reduces and reduces until you live in terror and fear that you're displeasing God all the time that's how it works i don't think i don't think i've ever met anybody that has endured that for years and years and years it doesn't have a bit of a struggle really believing that when you're saved it will endure forever God says you shall call your walls salvation when you really understand your salvation what God has done to save you then your gates will be called praise did you know that there are going to be there's going to be a wall in eternity If you go to Revelation 21, you're going to see nine verses that describe this wall, and there's going to be gates in the wall. Why? Because there's enemies outside the wall of the new Jerusalem? No. It's because God's presence is going to be around there, the security and the eternal ongoing value of your salvation will be glaringly obvious for every eye to see and every time you walk, listen, every time you walk through the gate of the new Jerusalem, which will always be open and never closed, every time your heart is going to erupt in new praise to your God who is faithful to you. That's the wall. The Bible's rich about walls. Walls. And it spends a lot of scriptural real estate telling you about them. And Nehemiah shows us how to repair them. It shows us how to restore streets with dwellings. And today we're going to see a Nehemiah whose name, remember, means the Lord has comforted. We're going to be seeing in the, in the life of Nehemiah the heart of a wall builder. Let me give you four, four character qualities of Nehemiah's heart that made him such a good wall builder. And here's where you start putting your own self next to them. Number one, Nehemiah. Really cared. Nehemiah cared. Now I know that sounds anticlimactic. I really do get that. Let me unpack that a little bit. Nehemiah is in Persia. Persia, specifically, he's in the city of Susa, it's the winter residence of the kings of Persia. If you want to know where it is, well, then go to a map and look up the Persian Gulf. Go 150 miles north, and you're right in Iran. That's that's where Susa is. That's where Nehemiah is writing from. And visitors from Jerusalem come to him. Verse 2, let's look at it together. Hanani, one of my brothers, this is Nehemiah writing, came with certain men from Judah. Now you got that word brothers, and let me tell you, there's two different ways that you could define that word in the, in the Hebrew language. Either it's ethnic brothers, you're from the same ethnicity, or you're from the same blood relationship. The fact that Nehemiah singles and, and separates Hanani from the certain men from Judah indicates that this is really his brother, we don't know that. It just seems to indicate that. This group comes to Nehemiah in Susa. And you might wonder, well, wait a minute. Aren't they in exile? Isn't, Aren't the Jews in captivity to Persia? And the answer is, yes, they are. But 90 years before this, they've been given permission to go back to Jerusalem. So about this time in history, it's not really unlike the times of Jesus when Jews could travel to and fro and have their own businesses and mingle with Gentiles at times. It was a lot of freedom as long as you do two things, pay your taxes and maintain the peace. If you're maintaining the peace and paying your taxes, then you could travel. And so this group travels to Nehemiah, and look at the second part of verse 2. Nehemiah, notice what he does. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. In other words, this is a little bit of a complicated way of saying Isaiah Nehemiah said, How are you doing? That's really what he's doing. How are you doing? How are God's people doing? How is Jerusalem doing? And it strikes me that he would even ask. And here's why it strikes me. You know, I have a gym membership. Somebody this morning accused me that maybe I ought to try to use it. <laughs> and the fact that he's actually leading worship playing the acoustic guitar, I won't mention his name. <clears throat> I take great slight at that. I have a gym membership really for three reasons. One, it's a great way to de-stress. Number two... Trying to get in shape. But number three, here's a big one. I'm surrounded by Christians. I mean, I love y'all, but it's I want to be around unbelievers too. This is my way to get into the midst of a lot of people that don't believe about Jesus Christ. And here's what I do at the gym. Some people think it's a little odd. I like to meet people. I love to meet people. I go up to may, almost only men. I will go up to men and I will introduce myself. I'll ask what their name is and then I'll ask them this question. What do you do for a living? Do you realize in the years and years I've been a member at this gym, I don't, I don't think that I ever recall anybody I've ever asked what they do for a living turning around and asking me what I do. Not once. I'm not bothered by that. Because when people find out I'm a pastor, all of a sudden, they change. I like being around real people. Authenticity is huge for me. Don't change because I'm a pastor. Just be who you are. And let me tell you why you're going to go to help. No, I didn't say that. I never, just kidding. I know, it's not even funny. That's the most inappropriate thing you've heard. Dirk Friend's not even laughing. <laughs> Listen, when you ask... Now, here, here's my point. When you ask how somebody's doing, it obligates you to their answer. You might think that people don't really ever ask about you or ask you how you're doing because they don't care I don't think that's the reason I think people don't ask how you're doing because they don't want to have to care not every one way conversation that you have with someone one way is because they don't like you I think more often it's because to the degree that you know somebody and their situation you're obligated to act you're obligated to do something haven't you, now listen, I'm going to put you to the test, and I think we're all going to fail. Haven't you ever not answered your phone when the caller ID tells you this is going to be a 60 minute difficult conversation? <laughs> we like to avoid. Don't you ever have an instance in your life when you've been walking down the hallway of a crowded school or a crowded office complex and you see somebody coming towards you that you do not want to have to talk to, so you change direction? Haven't you ever been watching on TV one of those horrible bone-crushing commercials of emaciated children in a third world country and you change the channel because it puts too much guilt in your life? We like to avoid. And when you don't ask people how they're doing, a lot of times it's because we know that if we ask and they tell us they're not doing very well, we'll feel terrible if we don't do something about it. This is straight out of Scripture. Jeremiah 15. Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? What God is saying, Jerusalem, you're in ruins. And listen, none of these countries are going to ask how you're doing because they don't want to have to do anything about it. God's wall builders ask And they're ready and they're prepared to obligate themselves to the degree that God tells them to do so. George Bernard Shaw wrote in his play, The Devil's Disciple, he wrote this, The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Listen, if we're going to be the people of God whom he will use to rebuild people whose walls are broken down and ruined their lives, you've got to be willing to ask how they're doing and ready to be obligated to do something about it. That's just what the scriptures teaches. Nehemiah asked because he genuinely cared. And it moved him to display the second quality of a wall builder. He listened. First, you've got to ask. And then you've got to listen. Now, you listen. And remember, you're laying your life down next to these. Do you ask understanding that whatever the answer is, you're going to be obligated to the degree that God says? But you care enough to ask. Do you do that? The second one is, do you listen when they begin telling you the answer to your question? How are you doing? Well, I've been waiting for you to ask. Let me tell you. Will you listen? You know, there's no daily newspaper where Nehemiah Nehemiah was. There's no internet news. There's no Twitter, Facebook, cell phones. There's no United States Post Office. It took months to send and receive letters. It was expensive They just didn't have that kind of communication. So when Nehemiah hears the report of how the people of God are doing and how the city of God is doing, he is shocked. It was news to him. He didn't know about this. Well, somebody might be thinking, well, how could he not know about this? Because it was 140 years before Nehemiah's conversation that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. How can he not know, what every Jewish child was taught growing up, that God brought Babylon to humble Jerusalem, and we're in exile because of our sin. They were all taught this. How can he not know the condition of Jerusalem? Well, then it helps to know that 90 years, 90 years before this conversation that Nehemiah has, The king allowed the Jews to go home to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding their city. That was 90 years before this conversation. And what happened was this. They began rebuilding and then all the enemies around Jerusalem conspired together and they wrote a letter and they sent it to the king. We have a copy of it. It's in the Bible. Here's what it says. Ezra four, the Jews who came up from you to us come up. Even though they went south, it's always up to Jerusalem. It's up on a high hill. The Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Do you know what, what that letter's saying? The Jews were being successful. The walls were being raised. The, the houses were being rebuilt. God's temple was finished. Worship was coming in. But then they sent this letter to the king. The king fires a letter back and says to all the enemies around him, this is 90 years before Nehemiah's conversation, make them stop and use force if necessary. You know what they did? They made him stop. And the way they made him stop was they took these half-finished walls and these partially rebuilt homes and dropped them right back down to piles of rubble. That was 90 years before Thirteen years before this conversation, God raises Ezra, the priest scribe, to take the second wave of Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild her. Nehemiah thought it was being rebuilt. Ezra went to revive the people. Ezra went to rebuild the city. Ezra went to do a work of God. Now Nehemiah hears it's not been successful. The people, the remnant, are in ruin. He heard the report, he asked a question, how are they doing? He heard the report and he listened, and Nehemiah shows the training and the discipline of Samuel, who as a little boy said these words to God, speak for your servant hears. How do you hear that goes into listening? There's a big difference of auditorily receiving information and listening because listening is discerning. Friends, those who serve God must learn to listen. And honestly, can we not be honest? For many of us, it's a missing discipline in our lives. I mean, you think, do you listen well honestly? Catchy little observation is that the same letters in the word listen also form the word silent. Some of you, I think, are writing that down to see if that's true. You have no trust for your lead pastor. Look how Nehemiah later recalls this conversation. Remember, this is his diary. He had this conversation. He later wrote it into his diary. Listen, here's the listening, discerning ear of Nehemiah. Verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the prom, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame he's speaking about the people then he says the wall of jerusalem is broken down its gates are destroyed by fire right you, you know jesus says that our words that come out of our mouths listen they come from your heart they don't come from your imagination. They don't come from anybody else. They come straight out of the repository of your heart. Bad words come from bad things stored up in your heart. Good words come from good things stored up in your heart. Those, that's what Jesus says. So what Nehemiah is writing is coming from heart, his, his heart. And look at what first dominates his concern. It's the people. It's the remnant. It's not the walls. Now listen, if you're logical, which a lot of us are, Logically driven, rationally minded, and you heard this report, I can tell you what you would have written in your diary most likely, the walls are in ruined and rubble and the people are struggling. Because you know the root problem is the walls. It's the walls that's the problem. I mean, you're not going to revive the people if you don't repair the walls, it's the walls that bring peace. It's the gates that bring praise. You gotta restore the walls. You gotta restore the, the gates. And so a rationally, logically driven person is going to be hearing these words and their mind's gonna go to the walls and then the people. That's not the heart of a wall builder. And that's not listening because God's heart always goes to the people first and the situation second. You know, when I was in college, undergraduate work, I was going through a very, very difficult time. I approached one of my psychology professors. This is an author, speaker, extraordinarily intelligent man. I, I approached him for help. By the way, here's some good advice. When you need counseling, don't go to a psych professor. A psych degree does not a counselor make. Often simply because they deal and they think with theories and diagnoses they don't think and listen with their heart well he gave me three to four minutes he says well I can talk to you I'm on my way to my next class so walk with me so here I am hurrying through the DeMoss building at Liberty University and I'm telling him the best I understand why I'm struggling three to four minutes he gets to his class and he says alright I gotta go into my class here's your problem here's what you need to do And then he went into his class. You know what? What he told what he told me was the problem, and what he told me to do, I later realized was right. But he left me feeling utterly rejected, in that he didn't care. See, if you get to the solution before you get to the person, then you're not a wall builder because wall builders emulate Jesus our Savior who whenever anybody who is suffering came into his sight, his heart was moved to compassion and then he went and did something about it. Your heart's got to move before your hands and your feet. Listening discerns what's really in ruin. God raises up wall builders whose love and concern for people is their first priority. And one of the best evidences of whether we love or not is how we respond when we see the ruin in somebody's life. That's your evidence. You might see the mess of broken walls, but God sees a suffering person in need of grace. Friends, is God raising you up to be a Nehemiah? One who brings the comfort of the Lord. A repairer of breaches, a restorer of broken dreams, and then care enough to ask and then sit in silence and listen and let discernment get down to the heart of the people before you give them their solutions. How are you doing in that? There's number two, by the way. Remember, you're laying your life down next to all four of these qualities. To see if, you're, if these qualities are in your life as well. Do you ask knowing that it's going to obligate you, but you care enough to ask? And when you ask, are you silent long enough to discern through listening what is really the problem or do you go straight to the solution? Here's what you need to do. But there's a third character quality and it's this. Nehemiah cared enough to listen and it caused him to grieve. It caused him to grieve. Listen, he might have been a Jew. He was a Jew. Nehemiah was a Jew, but he was born in Persia. Now, I want you to think through this. Get, get into the shoes of Nehemiah for a second. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never worshiped at the temple of God. He's never brought a gift to the heavenly father in the blessed city into the presence of the Lord. He's never had royal blood that's flowed through his veins. He doesn't own property in Jerusalem that he's concerned about. He doesn't have stock in any publicly traded company of Jerusalem. He's from Persia. He's a Jew in a foreign land. But he was a Jew. And he served Yahweh, and Yahweh's people were suffering, and the news of their suffering, look what it produced in his heart in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. You know, it's been kind of trendy in the last 10 years of the church movement. To ask this question, if your church suddenly blinked out of existence, would your community weep? That's a a question that's been asked hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times around the country. I think the better question is to turn that and reverse it. It might be more biblically accurate to ask, does your church weep for your community? Let me nail it a little closer to our own hearts. Does your, your heart grieve over those whose lives are in ruin all around you? Do you weep for those whose walls are broken down? Listen, do you know, friends, you might, but do you know that many divorced people, when they come into this church, they feel like everyone is judging them? Are you aware of that? Do you know the parents whose kids have walked away from Christ, do you know that they feel like failures and that they live almost constantly in regret? I wish we would have done that or I wish we didn't do that. Maybe it's our fault. Do you know that's what dominates their thinking? Do you know that the woman who is married to that alcoholic floats back and forth between humiliation and livid rage at her husband seamlessly many times a day? Do you know the men who lose their jobs, they struggle to even come out in public? Coming to church and the humiliation of losing your job is almost too much. Some, it shuts into a private life for months. Do you know that most people who are obese, do you know that they despise their weaknesses? Their bodies are flags pointing to their problems. Do you know the many in the church all around us, in this church, Cornerstone, are addicted to all sorts of vices. And I've not met one single addict who really likes the addiction. Everyone I know, everyone I've counseled hates it, they loathe it, they just don't know how to stop it. That's the condition of broken walls. They're all around us, and when you see them, what does your heart do? I remember, I, will not, I don't cry very often. In fact, I think it was Matthew who asked me about six months ago, Dad, have you ever cried? I'm not Spock, punk. I have feelings. I don't cry very often, but I will never forget maybe ten years ago, upstairs with a group of people in prayer because we had a lady that I'd been counseling for a long time who was an alcoholic and could not stop drinking. It was literally destroying her life and her families. And we were praying and I will not forget how broken my heart became. I just began weeping. That is so rare for me. I just began crying for her. That's what your heart does when you're a wall builder. When God shows you the ruins in somebody's life, your heart lurches toward them in grief. The remnant, verse 3, there in the province, this is Nehemiah writing, who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. You know what that word trouble means? It means evil. But you've got to put the intensifier that Nehemiah does, the word great. Now you know they're suffering in great evil. They're experiencing intense evil. And you know what happens when you experience intense evil against you for long enough, look what he says. It produces shame. Now that in itself is really kind of interesting, but maybe not gripping enough. Look at what he says. Look with me. Look at the preposition. It's not that they were experiencing brief but difficult times. Look at it. They were in Look what it says. They were in great trouble and shame, meaning they were inside of it. They were enveloped by it. They were trapped in it. Do you know anybody that is trapped in great trouble and shame? Great evil, the destructive power of sin, both theirs and other people's, had trapped them and left them in a state of shame. You know what shame is, right? Shame If I could take you in a a brief deep dive of the word, shame is a perverse lie that you are hopelessly defective, unwanted, and nothing will ever change. That's the lie of shame. God will never produce shame into the heart of his children. It comes from other people. And our own sinful hearts, friends, are their fertile soil for these lies to take root. Haven't you ever been told, or don't you know anybody that's been told by a parent that they're worthless, they're a liar and a failure? You ever had a demeaning boss who delights in telling you how poorly? Your work is compared to so and so. You ever had a teacher who tells you that you're never going to amount to anything in life? You ever had a coach who thinks he's motivating you when he mocks you in front of everybody? You ever seen magazine photos and say to yourself, I am just ugly. All of that, all of that comes in from outside of you into fertile hearts who are ready to receive it and propagate the plants of shame. And the Holy Spirit, friend, you should be happy for this. The Holy Spirit produces guilt in us. Guilt is is mercy, guilt is God saying what you're doing and where you're heading. It's wrong. It's going to lead in your destruction. It's going to end in your destruction. Turn this way and come back to me and obey and trust. That's what guilt does. It's from the Holy Spirit to turn us away from sin, back to favor with God. But shame works the other direction. Shame turns you away from God. It's a short circuit for faith, for His grace. God can't possibly love you. You're too defective. It turns you away from God and moves you to a God substitute. You're really don't trust God, and then try this. This promises to give you what you want. Is that not precisely what Satan did to Eve? God's holding out on you, Eve. He does not have your best interest. Try this fruit. It'll do what God won't. That's the way shame works. And this is the people of Jerusalem. They are in great Evil. They are in it so long that they're now inside, enveloped around in in bondage to shame. Shame, by the way, means cutting, lacerates you and slices you to ribbons until you've got nothing left. That's what shame does. And to a wall builder, this is heartbreaking. When you see somebody that's in great evil and is producing shame in their hearts, Nehemiah, look what he did. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. That's the heart of a wall builder. It must break before your hands and feet move. How are you doing that? Does your heart grieve? for those whose lives are in ruin. Well, Pastor Tim, I'm not the crying type. I'm not the grieving type. Well, you're commanded to be. James says, turn your joy to gloom, your celebration to mourning, and get moving towards people and help. But there's one more heart quality that I want you to see. Nehemiah cared enough to listen. It caused him grief. And it moved him to act, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's Nehemiah. He heard the report of the people. He heard the report of the city of God. His heart broke. And here's what he did in movement. He took it to God in prayer. Not for a day. Listen, not for a week and not for a month chapter 2 verse 1 starts four months later for four months elijah spent regular time fasting Praying before the God of heaven. That phrase is important. It's called Corum Deo in the Latin, before the face of God. It means that God sees everything in your life. God cares about everything that happens. When we pray, we're bringing things before His face. We're bringing things to His attention and we're bringing His attention to things. We're the mediators. We're the priests. We're the bridge builders. We connect God to hurting people and hurting people people to God. That's what you are, believer, if you're a Christian. You're a priest. And that's what priests do. Nehemiah is going before God to bring the Jews to God, and he's about to bring God to the Jews. That's what a wall builder does. And they stay in prayer until God makes the plan clear. Last night after church, I had a lady come up to me and Tell me, Pastor Tim, I've got a good friend whose walls are broken down. She's going through a divorce. And I've come around her. And I meet with her. I talk to her a lot during the week. I pray for her constantly. But now, Tim, now she's the anger that she has for her husband. Now it's all coming on to me. What did I do wrong? And I said, did you ask how she's doing? Yes, yes. Did you listen when she answered? Yes. Did your heart break? Definitely. Did you go to God in prayer and wait for him to give you the plan? Wait for him to put the boundary of how much you help? She goes, no. That's your problem. This is what we tend to do. We, our hearts break. We want to go rescue. We want to go, go help. And we, go, we, we begin to shoot and aim later. And God's wall builders always aim before they shoot. They always wait for God to tell them what to do before they begin to do. And wall builders don't ever pray, God, would you find somebody to go help? They're always praying, is it me, God, that you're raising up to help? And if it is, tell me what to do and I will do it. That's a wall builder. Nehemiah knew it would not be, listen, would not be written into God's word for 500 years until the book of James came into existence. He knew, he practiced. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is what governed Nehemiah's motivation. And he acted not first to develop a plan. He went to his knees because rarely, rarely, Will God make it immediately clear to his servants exactly what he wants them to do? It usually takes time. Why? Because because God wants you to prove that you're going to, by faith, wait. You throw your plan together in two minutes, it'll fall apart in three. You wait and let God tell you what to do, and it will endure with his blessing. Abraham Lincoln knew this. He said, I've been driven to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. Haven't you ever been right there? Lord, I don't know what to do. Well, God does. So we go to our knees until he tells us what it is, even if it's four months of fasting and praying. Friends, are your eyes... Are your eyes beginning to open? We're only two sermons into this series. We're going to be in it for a while. But are your eyes beginning to open to your job as a wall builder? And are your eyes beginning to open maybe to the rubble that's in your own lives, your own ruined walls, or those in the people all around you, maybe even those in the east end of the Lehigh Valley? This is why we do on-ramps. This is why we ask you to get involved Who else is going to restore the walls to the community? If God is opening your eyes, will you listen to this? And he's preparing you to build. Do you believe that? If he is opening your eyes, he is preparing you to build. So ask people how they're really doing. And listen to their hearts. Let your heart break. For some of us, make it break. As you sit in their misery long enough. Then take that to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? I will do it. And wait for him to answer. Those are the four qualities that we see in Nehemiah, who was a master wall builder. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book. We're going to learn so much. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes, that you will make our hearts grieve, that we will not run off and shoot first and aim later, Father. We will wait until you speak to us and tell us what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. But Lord, let us not pray for somebody else to do it for us. Let's help us to ask and care. And listen and grieve and pray. We love you. We ask for your blessing of your word on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.